You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Indonesia's election database has leaked and PII is for sale in the dark web. Phishing campaigns abuse Firebase. The shiny hunters are selling Mathway user records. U.S. agencies warn of COVID-19-themed criminal campaigns. Contact tracing technology hits a rough patch. Johannes Ulrich on phishing PDFs with incremental updates. Our guest is author Peter Singer on his new book, Burn In. And what are you going to do when you return to the workplace? If, that is, you've left the workplace at all, and if you're in fact ever going to return. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, May 22nd, 2020. Indonesia's General Election Commission is investigating the release of voters' private information on a hacker website. Reuters says that 2.3 million people's data have so far been released, but that those claiming responsibility are threatening to expose data on 200 million Indonesians. Authorities confirmed that the data were authentic and that they included such items as home addresses and national identification numbers. The source of the leak is unknown, but the General Election Commission said that it didn't happen in the commission's own servers. They suggest that it may have come from the presidential candidates or political parties with whom the commission is obligated by law to share such data. Researchers at Trustwave Spider Labs have observed phishing campaigns abusing Firebase, the Google-owned application development platform that offers users secure storage on the Google Cloud. The phishing emails are fairly routine, using commodity-level templates that misrepresent themselves as coming from such well-known brands as Outlook, Office 365, or the Bank of America. But the use of Firebase URLs in the phishing is significant, as many of those will pass through automated screens established in email systems. The Shiny Hunters gang appears to be offering stolen Mathway user records for sale, Mathway is a highly rated Android and iOS calculator app. Bleeping Computer reports that Mathway is currently investigating the incident. ZeroFox has been tracking the shiny hunters in their other criminal activities. The gang has been an unusually active player in the criminal market for data. Four U.S. federal agencies, the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the Internal Revenue Service, the Department of the Treasury and the U.S. Secret Service all warn that the government continues to encounter attempts by criminals to steal personal and banking information using COVID-19 fish bait to lure their victims. Fifth Domain reports that many of these attempts involve drawing people in with proffers of assistance from the CARES Relief Act and other programs established to help people during the economic stresses of the pandemic. 
Computer Weekly reports that authorities in the UK acknowledge that the NHS contact tracing app won't make the June 1st deadline for a national rollout. This is due in part to skittishness by the governments of Northern Ireland and Scotland about the privacy and efficacy of the system. Northern Ireland, for example, doesn't want a system that will impede travel across the border with the Republic of Ireland. NHS Highland, responsible for healthcare in Scotland, has undertaken development of its own system designed to protect residents, visitors, and staff in care homes from the infection by creating virtual geozones around the care home and particularly sensitive or quarantined areas to control access, as well as dynamic personal two-meter geozones around everyone with the app. It's also due in part to what's increasingly perceived as an unacceptable degree of bugginess in the app source code itself. As Gizmodo UK put it, it's just getting silly now. In any case, a June 1st rollout is now generally regarded as an impossibility. The U.S. federal government hasn't undertaken development of a national contact tracing app along British lines, but some of the states have. North and South Dakota have deployed CARE-19, an app that collects geolocation data under conditions that require opt-in, anonymization, and no sharing with third parties. But researchers at privacy specialist shop Jumbo Privacy have looked at CARE-19 and report, as the Washington Post reports, that one of the first contact tracing apps violates its own privacy policy. In particular, Jumbo says that Care19 shares location data with Foursquare, best known for its offerings in support of advertisers, and also that the app's data aren't really as anonymous as one might think. They include devices advertising identifiers. Jumbo recommends that users not install the app until Care19's privacy policy is updated for accuracy, and until the app can assure users that their data won't be shared with third parties. There are other state-level projects under development. The Telegraph reports that British tech company WeHo has contracted with eight states to develop a system for tracking the movements of connected cars, the better to help the states ensure that people are following stay-at-home orders, going out only for essentials like groceries, and not simply gallivanting around like a bunch of Sunday drivers. Comments on the story generally evince a negative reaction to this kind of tracking, as well as some expression of relief that, thank heaven, the commenter drives a primitive rattle trap without newfangled internet gizmos. Remote work appears likely to remain widespread even after the pandemic abates. Facebook is the most prominent corporation to announce that it's all in on a teleworking future. The Wall Street Journal reports that Menlo Park sees many advantages in terms of cost savings, productivity, and employee quality of life when its people won't actually have to show up in Menlo Park. And of course, Mr. Zuckerberg foresees more geographical and ideological diversity if the company's workers can live anywhere and not remain so closely tied to the San Francisco Bay Area. The U.S. federal government has also found that many of its jobs can be done from home. Federal Times reports that the U.S. federal CIO Suzette Kent says the government has been able to rethink its ways of doing business and now has a better grip of the sorts of work that in fact require physical presence to accomplish. This is good news for vendors who specialize in remote collaboration tools, as the Wall Street Journal also observes. The effects on individual workers will vary depending on their home circumstances. They may also have to accept lower salaries. Few places have a higher cost of living than Silicon Valley, and that will surely factor into compensation plans. 
There are some downsides to both returning to the office and continuing to work from home. Police in the U.K. are concerned that businesses take proper precautions to ensure that the offices they've abandoned during the pandemic are clear of cyber threats when people return. SC Magazine quotes Peter Goodman, chief constable for the Derbyshire Constabulary, national lead for cybercrime and for serious and organized crime, National Police Chief's Council, as saying, quote, because unfortunately some may have locked the front door but have forgotten to close the back door as they left. We do anticipate that there may be some malware sitting on people's systems as they get back to work, end quote. Imagine an infestation of evil maids if you must, but at least take a look at security upon your return. Another issue that might be easily overlooked by organizations continuing to work remotely, does your cyber insurance cover risks of telework? J.D. Supra advises you to check your policies. And finally, Monday is Memorial Day in the United States, and we'll be observing the federal holiday with a break from publication. We'll be back as usual on Tuesday, May 26th. In the meantime, spare a thought and a memory for the fallen, for their families, and for those alongside whom they served. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. P.W. Singer is author of a number of noteworthy books, including Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, and Ghost Fleet, which he co-authored with August Cole. Their latest effort is the techno-thriller Burn-In, a novel of the real robotic revolution. 
E.W. Singer joined me to discuss the book. What we did with Burnin is that we designed into it from the very start the idea that it could be a blend of both storytelling, but also that people would learn from it. So it's a it's a new kind of uh, book. It's a mix of novel and nonfiction. So it's a techno thriller. Uh, it follows a character, uh, an FBI agent, 20 years from now, set in Washington, D.C., as she's on the hunt for a new kind of terrorist who's uh, using new cyber means, uh, relevant to what you and I are gathered to talk about, to conduct the types of attacks that weren't possible before, in effect, to hold an entire city hostage. But along the way, baked into the story are some 300 explanations and predictions that are drawn from nonfiction style research. Uh, and literally, they've got the footnotes in the text. So it might be anything from uh, when two characters are talking and in the distance, a delivery drone with six rotors flies overhead. It'll then have a footnote to show that's not what you know Singer dreamed up. It actually has to the Amazon patent for that specific design. You know, you mentioned uh, the extensive endnotes for the book, and, and it really is sort of a, a hybrid. I, I don't know that I've ever seen a, a work of fiction that is so well documented uh, the way that, that you and your co-author have done here. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, can you give us some insights on um, these boundaries that you set up for yourselves? It's, a, it's almost like you, you've, you've put a, a certain set of rules, like a, a puzzle that you had to solve by... Um, not allowing yourself the sort of hand-waving that you'll see with, with many books that deal with the future, that deal with technology. Yeah, it, it's certainly a heck of a lot more challenging. Um, it'd be a lot easier if you could just say, oh, and then the, you know, the, the good guy pulled out his XYZ thing and solved it. Or, um, you right. know, the way some of the TV shows are where, and now we hack the system, clickety-clack. Okay, we're in. Um, <laughs> and uh, But again, you know, it goes back to this concept of a cross between a novel and nonfiction. Uh, for some people, it's just hopefully going to be a, a, a great summer read. Uh, now, I, I don't know whether it's going to be a read um, while they're, still stuck at home, or maybe they'll be allowed to go out to the beach. But, you know, some people will just enjoy it that way. For other people, they're going to go, ooh, and, and maybe look at that footnote. And um, that's because uh, we spent literally years on this double track. Uh, one, which is, you know, building up the characters and the scenes. But sometimes as you hit that, that idea of a puzzle, you know, it's a character faces a certain challenge. Um, how do I uh, cause this bad thing to happen? Okay, what would a real world bad guy do? Or the bad guy has just done X. How would a real world FBI agent or uh, a Marine respond? Yeah, well, the the book is certainly very entertaining. It's quite a page turner, but um you know, beyond that, what are I'm the gonna, things yeah, you want I just, people... You're going to have to have that quote out there and blast it out to everyone. <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> no, I, but I, I'm curious, um, beyond just the entertainment factor, what are the things that you hope people take away from it? A couple of things. Um, one is this challenge of uh, understanding 
the world that's changing around us. Um, we have a, a certain irony playing out right now where the technologies of science fiction, they're coming true. And yet science fiction hasn't well equipped us for them. Either it's something that is never going to happen in the distant future. You know, the, uh, the Secretary of Treasury said that automation is not something we have to think about for, quote, 50 to 100 years, end quote. And that's why it's, quote, not even on, his, uh, not even on my radar screen, end quote, is how mm. he talked about it. Well, we're already seeing the effect of, of automation in everything from um, critical infrastructure systems, be it a regular business, be it at a power system, be it at a hospital. We see automation playing out in our homes, and we're only at the start of this. So you have that one, it's way off in the distance, and then you have the other that it's all about, well, you know, the only risk factor to think about is, you know, one day they might kill us all. The, the killer robot narrative that's gotten so much attention. Um, yeah. No, we've got all of these issues we have to think about, everything from how it changes our economy, how it changes um, our politics, how it changes our security. So the book raises these issues, but also it helps share the basics of them for people that don't want to read, uh, you know, an academic white paper. And, and I'm an academic and I, I, I get most people don't want to read it. So, you know, we explain through the story everything from um, how AI works to some of the issues we have to figure out, like um, the concept of algorithmic bias what happens when the machines train the wrong way and it gives you a bum steer? We explain that, but in a way that you don't feel like you're being, you know, spoon-fed the, the yucky vegetables. Um, so I hope it's helpful to people um, in understanding what looms and giving them sort of the basic terms and concepts. Um, and then, you know, maybe we also steer towards certain things that, uh, hey, you have to fix this if we want to be a lot safer. That's P.W. Singer. The book is titled Burn In. There's much more to our conversation, and you can check that out when you sign up for CyberWire Pro. And I am pleased to be joined once again by Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute, and he is also host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Johannes, always great to have you back. Um, you all have been uh, tracking uh, some reflective DNS DDoS attacks. Uh, fill us in here. What's going on? Yeah, so uh, we just want to know uh, what's happening with these attacks. Uh, they used to be really big like a few years ago where they hit some large banks, but hadn't really heard much about these attacks. So what we did is we set up a little honeypot that basically acted as a reflective uh, DNS server. So basically it could be used to amplify these attacks. We put, of course, some controls around it that it wouldn't cause any damage. But then we just looked, how is it going to be used? And we did see actually quite a number of uh, reflective attacks being launched. What we sort of noticed is a couple things. First of all, the targets were all small businesses or hobby sites and things like hmm. that. Looks like the banks, the large targets that used to be in the news like a few years ago, well, uh, they found workarounds for this as I usually say, they managed to buy their way out of it. That's what you usually do with a non-service <laughs> attack. You hire some service, you buy more bandwidth uh, to block these attacks. These small companies, well, they don't really have the option to do that. 
Can you give us a little bit of the background of what's going on when we're talking about a reflective DNS DDoS attack? Yeah, so the way they essentially work is that an attacker will spoof a query. So they'll claim to be like that small business and they'll ask a question. And the question is very small. Like, hey, uh, tell me everything you know about uh, this particular uh, domain name or this particular host name. And uh, then the DNS server that's badly configured in this case will respond with a very large response. Now, Mm. this response will go to the victim uh, that uh, the attacker claimed uh, to represent. Uh, And uh, this can lead to amplifications of sort of in the order of 20 to 100. Uh, Since it's DNS, it's also kind of difficult to defend against. You can't just easily block DNS. You have to be a little bit more selective in how you filter this. And so the amplification plus the fact that these responses come from valid innocent bystander DNS servers here really uh, makes it difficult uh, to defend against. And also uh, the attack can be quite massive. Uh, they can be you know, gigabytes, uh, gigabits per second, uh, which again, for a smaller uh, website is difficult to defend and can be quite expensive. Do you have any insights as to why these small businesses and, and hobby sites end up being targets? That's sometimes a little bit hard to tell, uh, but One thing we noticed is a lot of IRC servers, and yes, IRC is still around. Uh, (laughs) IRC has historically been sort of a favorite target for these sort of nuisance denial of service attacks. Kids getting angry at each other. I remember way back when I started this business, it was like around 2000, there was this game of uh, IRC jousting where basically Mm. two people uh, sort of gave each other their IP address and then a launch denial of service attack against each other and whoever dropped off the IRC channel first lost. <laughs> uh, in the process, they took down, of course, a couple of ISPs and such. Yeah, uh, well, you but, know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all for the fun of it. <laughs> right, yeah, um, sure. <laughs> sort of an, an interesting little uh, side note on this. I noticed that a lot of .gov domains are being abused here. And the reason for this is that .gov mandates the use of DNSSEC. Now, DNSSEC is security technology, so you would think, hey, it's a good thing, but it does make DNS response a lot larger because now you have to include all these keys and such. Mm. Um, Of all websites, PeaceCore.gov is like one of the top targets we have seen there. Hmm. Wow, yeah, there's a small irony there, I suppose. Yeah. All right. Uh, Interesting, as always. Uh, Johannes Ulrich, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.